Houston, who was everything at that time, married Bobby Brown, who was the not everything, but he, I mean, he was the height of his, his popularity and power. That was also the beginning of the end of Whitney Houston. Yeah, probably. Some would, some would argue. And they became a super couple. They did. Because there weren't a lot of super couples. They there. showed what true love's all about. It's about poop fetching. Let's do this. Welcome, everyone, to the Gravity Beard Podcast. We're recording today in Studio A. Thank you, as always, to our listeners. We appreciate your continued support. Hey, hey, guys. Welcome to uh, the continuation episode of the music of 1992. On this episode, we're going to talk about three profiles of uh, popular artists that solidified that particular year, either by their popularity or their impact. Okay. So, buckle in. That's right. And have some stuff and fun. Okay, Whoa, so have some stuff and fun. I have a trouble distinguishing and the two of those things. <laughs> they blend together Stuff for can me. suck, too. That's true. They can not be fun well, at all. Hey, that's right. That's why I want to have stuff and fun. Sometimes right. fun can start exactly. out pretty good. I was trying to explain that to him. Oh, I to got him. That's where right. you were coming I, But I think you would agree that sometimes fun starts out fun, but then can suck. Oh, yeah. There's uh, no that's doubt. That's true. Fun can become very unfun yes. very fast. Usually but what's it best is when fun becomes unfun and it continues unfun for so long that it becomes fun again. And then you rally. Right. And it becomes right. fun again. Yeah. Or the level of unfunness becomes comically unfun. Right. Well, it's a lot like uh, Family Guy. If you think about it, Family Guy likes to push a joke so far that it's That's so true. annoying and like you're like, okay, it's not funny anymore. And then it becomes funny because it's gone on so it's, long. It's the magic of unfun. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'm going to kick off. Chris, uh, I'm gonna, I'm I gonna, can't wait to hear about this. I'm going to do the first profile, and it's, it's regarding the artist that did this song. Time. Can bring you down. <laughs> <laughs> what the? And time can bend your knees. This is lovely, <laughs> but we're very confused. Do you guys remember? Do you guys remember the song from 1992? No. I'm trying to think who this artist is. And Harry Connick. Is it Harry Connick? It's not. It's the person in profiling. You don't recognize this? Wait, wait, wait. It's a there. different one. It's a different Eric Clapton. Like a, okay, fair enough. This isn't this isn't Eric Clapton. This is Paul Anka <laughs> from the 2005 album Rock Swings doing his version of Tears in Heaven. This is oh, Tears is this in Heaven? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll bring that to an end. The artist that I'm profiling made a huge comeback in, their, in 1992 playing this song. Great. 
great. Fantastic. Yeah. Terrible way to have a hit song. Yeah, it is. Well, but, which which we'll get into that. Uh, but do we have to? Here, here's what I want to point out before I jump into the profile. So this was 25 years ago this year, and this in, when he did this song, we're about to learn that was 25 years into his career. So yeah. this this song and this album came right at the midpoint of Eric Clapton's career. And I thought that was really interesting. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. Okay. I, if I continue hearing that song and, and knowing what it's about, and okay. I might start crying right All now. All right. So, so we'll get into that. Eric Patrick Clapton, born March 30th, 1945, an English rock and blues guitarist, singer, and songwriter. So here's a couple of quick points on Eric Clapton. He's the only three-time inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, once as a solo artist and separately right. as a member of Yardbirds and Cream. And Cream, yeah. Clapton's been referred to as one of the most important and influential guitarists of all time. He ranks second in Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time behind Jimi Hendrix. Wow. He got his first guitar, which was a really terrible guitar for his 13th birthday. It was so hard to play that he stopped playing it. Two years later, he got another guitar and picked it up again. So this is at the age of 15. So one thing I want you guys to pay attention to is how old he was when some of these different things happened. So he picked up guitar again at 15. Obviously loved it. He was influenced by the blues at a really early age. Practiced for hours and hours and hours trying to learn blues, blues uh, chord progressions. So here's how he became famous. His guitar playing was so advanced that by the age of 16, he was already getting noticed. And so around this time, he was playing on sidewalks in public places for tips. In 1962, at the age of 17, he started performing in hub pubs around his hometown, Surrey. And th- that's when he joined his first band, an early British R&B group called The Roosters. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't say how he joined, joined the Yardbirds, but the very next year at the age of 18, he joined the Yardbirds. Did, did the Roosters become the Yardbirds? No. I mean, they're no, the same he, thing. No, he was in a couple of other small bands around town. Okay. And then all of a sudden he got picked up by the Yardbirds. He, he, <laughs> he had an avian thing going yeah. on? So, so he went from doing, doing the Roosters to joining Jim, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and Steve Winwood. Yeah. All wow. le- all legendary now, but artists. But granted, at the time, they were all just a bunch of dudes, a bunch of kids. Well, they were, but it's like seeing a TV show or a movie where they all grow up to be superstars. Sure, sure. Right. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like, like when we were talking about the Sheens when they grew up and they totally, were hanging around. Exactly. Uh, who was it that they were hanging Rob Lowen? Yeah, Rob yeah. Lowen, his brother, and then yeah. Sean Penn and his yeah. brother. And, and so all these all these legendary future legends of music were all teenagers in this town. You know and, what that reminds and all me of? Yeah. It reminds me a lot of what us right here it does <laughs> except very podcasts. similar except we're in our 40s it's very similar that we're going to be dominating podcasting at the age of 90 we are all legends we're going to be huge yeah. podcasting at we're about be, 40 win years all the podcasting awards <laughs> <laughs> we're going to make dollars right virtual never mind so, bitcoin so three it's years all Bitcoin in the future. In 1966, he he joined the the newly formed band Cream, which of course we just said he he was inducted to the Hall of Fame with them. Mm-hmm. And in March of 67, at the age of 22, he made his first his first trip to the United States. So so that same year, Clapton's sound and playing inspired the famous slogan "Clapton is God." So think think about that. He was 22, 22 years old. He'd already done the things that I'd mentioned. And at that age, he was considered a god in the music in the music industry at 22. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I mean, it, you know, obviously, it, there's a reason. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that characterizes Eric Clapton is that he's known from jumping from from band to band. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he he just kept on doing that. Every couple of years, he was doing something else. 
1969, he formed Blind Faith, which debuted to a hundred great band. Yeah, which which debuted to a hundred thousand people. Their first performance. Yeah, debuted. Yes. <laughs> so, wow. So, so he forms Blind Faith. Are you kidding me? Eric Clapton was God. That's ridiculous. Yeah. To, so take any football stadium in the country, fill it. And that's the add cr- more, add more. Typically, yeah, and that's that's the crowd that he debuted to the very first performance of when he formed Blind Faith in '69. Unbelievable, yeah. So check this out. Seven months after that, he was done with Blind Faith. <laughs> Whatever, dudes. Yeah, he's like, I'm over it. And he formed Delaney and Friends. At the same time, he was playing with the Plastic Ono Band with John Lennon and George Harrison. Uh, then in 1970, he formed Derek and the Dominoes. He switched again. And then that only lasted one year until he went solo, continuing to play with other legendary musicians from around the United States and the UK. So, so think about that. Three years before, he made his first trip to the United States, and then already he went through all of those things and was, and was moving on to wow. his solo career. So, uh, so you're saying he was pretty good? Yes. Like, he was just... Clapton, Clapton was everywhere doing everything. Yeah, I, yeah. A lot of people today, I think, younger people don't really know a lot about him because it's not like he's part of mainstream music today no, and, no, and no, I, no yeah no. and i'll get to i'll get to that he did everything i just mentioned in a six-year period yeah all of that so he went from just he being, created two bands that got into the hall of fame so, all within six years so just to put it in perspective in 10 years he went from a 15 year old kid that was had just picked up a guitar to being one of the biggest legends in music in 10 years from the age of 15 to 25 pretty remarkable yeah and that yeah, amazing? It was no doubt okay so that's where things kind of kind of take a twist the early to mid 70s was marked by solo performances and eric clapton stealing george harrison's wife and develop <laughs> yes you remember that no yes. i don't remember that let's layla yeah patty patty boyd yeah and so in addition to stealing george harrison's wife he was also busy developing a crippling alcohol and drug addiction Yay. in that time. So that's when he experienced a dip in his career in the late 70s, and his drug and alcohol addiction had reached its peak. And I thought this was interesting. In 1982, he flew to Minnesota for treatment. Don't we all? So, so in the 80s, he released a ton of stuff. That, so he was, just, he was out there, but not really widely embraced. Yeah. So by the time 1992 rolled around... Like I said earlier, Clapton had been a legend already for 25 years. He basically had three careers worth of stuff and experience as a band member and a solo artist by that time. And then, less than a year apart, he experienced two terrible tragedies. The first one was, on August 27, 1990, fellow blues guitarist Steve Ray Vaughan, who was touring with Clapton and three members of their road crew, were killed in a, in a helicopter crash between concerts. Now, Clapton wasn't on that flight, but Stevie Ray was on there with a couple of other people. Clapton was supposed to be, I think. Yeah, I think he was too. So then on March 20th, 1991, just a few months later, less than a year later, Clapton's four-year-old son, Connor, died oh. after oh. falling from the 53rd floor window of his mother's friend's New York City apartment. Yeah, I, I remember when that I remember thinking, oh, well, you know, when you're it 17, 18, you're like, oh, that's sad, but it, it didn't impact me. Right, but exactly. I, you know, to hear it now, it, it's, it's, it's a wholly different story. Well, that's because we're parents now, and I, I have a five-year-old, and so I can't help but visualize mm-hmm. that happening, and it's gut-wrenching. Yeah, absolutely. Right? After isolating himself for a period, understandably, Clapton began working again. 
he was at the time he was writing for a movie uh, about drug addiction called Rush. That's what's interesting about the song Tears in Heaven, because that's what brought Eric Clapton back into the forefront in 1992 is, is that song. However, the story behind the song is a little different than what I think all of us remember. And so, so here's a, here's a quote from an article about it. This was a quote from his, his co-writing partner on that song and, and that album. It says, Eric and I were engaged to write a song for, the movie, for a movie called Rush. We wrote a song called Help Me Up for the end of the movie. Then Eric saw another place in the movie for a song, and he said to me, says, I want to write a song about my boy. And he says, this is a song that's so personal and so sad that it's unique uh, in my in my experience of writing songs, that's what his co-writer said, and, and Clapton himself oh, had yeah. had had this to say in a 1992 interview about the song. It says it's a little ambiguous because it could be taken to be about Connor, but it was also meant to be part of the film. So there's actually two versions huh. of there's actually two versions of this song. If you listen to the song "Tears in Heaven" on the Rush soundtrack, it's composed a little differently. Is it done by him? Or yeah, is it a, yeah, it's okay. performed by Eric Clapton, but but it's musically it's a little bit differently. I've, I've never heard that version. I didn't either. The song was was tremendously successful. Obviously, we've talked about that. It sold 2.8 million copies. It's the most successful best-selling single in the U.S. It made it to number six in the Billboard Top 100 for 1992. Uh, the song was nominated for 13 awards, taking home six of them, including Best Male Video at the 1992 MTV Video Music Awards. It also won two Grammys. Uh, in 2004, it was recognized by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a song that shaped rock and roll. Do you think a lot of it had to do with because of the what had happened to his son, there's, too? There's and, no question. Well, there's no you know. question. That's why. Yeah, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. He deserved it, too. But I think, sure. I think they um, almost like they gave him everything because of that. Right. Well, the, the record so. companies and all that, they like to have a story and and. and Without MTV's unplugged, I don't. It would not have been a big, as big a deal. Right. I loved MTV's unplugged. I don't know if you and you guys liked it. Oh, or not, sure, sure. I loved awesome. it. But that one in particular, I think that is the one. That's, well, that's maybe Nirvana's unplugged. Is yeah, also that was great. Important. Pearl Jam did one too, too, which I liked. But but Clapton Clapton was the king that. of that. Yeah, he made that song. Even though it appeared on the on the soundtrack for the for the movie Rush. It was the version he did for MTV Unplugged, obviously that you know, that brought him back into the mainstream, right? And and it introduced him to a new generation, including me. Mariah Carey was on MTV Unplugged and did an amazing performance just a few months before this. No one ever even remembers boring. That one. No, no, no. So ever. in the same year, and she was huge at that time. Yeah, but, but it was no it was one this remembers song. that. No. So the album Eric Clapton Unplugged. Sold 26 million copies worldwide and remains one of the best selling live albums of all time. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Ask, yeah. Ask Whitney Houston. I feel it. Whitney just kind of made that look like her bitch, though. She <laughs> did with her, with her 45 million copies. <laughs> yeah. But that wasn't a live album. Here. I know. I know. It was a soundtrack. Yeah. So, so, in addition to the two Grammys he won for the single Tears in Heaven, this album won six more Grammys. Just this album alone. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I think it's easy to say that that, that this song, that the song "Tears in Heaven," was a huge part of music in 1992. Yes, no doubt. So today, Clapton actually turned 73 in March. In the last 25 years, since then, so 50 years he's been doing this. You're yes. Saying. Okay. Cla- so Clapton's still active. He doesn't tour nearly as often, uh, but that kind of marked the Wouldn't halfway. Would you like point. to see him? 
I mean, I saw him. About, Has anybody seen him? I saw him, about, saw ten, him? I saw him about 10 okay. years ago at the State Fair. Yeah. I saw I, Gosh, this would be going back 15 years. I think I saw I've him. never seen him. I want to see him. He's good. I mean, it's hard to catch him now because yeah. yeah. he, he only plays very sporadically. But right. basically what we're realizing is this marked the halfway point to his career. If you, so he had 25 years up to that point, and mm-hmm. it's been 25 years. He's done 16 albums in the last 25 years. With the last one, actually, um, just about a year and a half ago in September of 2016. And he, he doesn't tour much, but he still does occasional live performances if you want to try, try to catch him. Wow. Well, thank you for that, Chris. That was fantastic. Thank you, sir. Nice job with Eric Clapton. That was that was that well was deserved. Eric Clapton too dun, dun, to be dun, one dun. of the three. Kids would be happy with that. One of the yeah. kings. One of the kings of music of 1992. Yep, for sure, without a doubt, including many other years as well. Many, many other years. Yeah. Now, John, who do you have for us today? Well, I'm going to talk about Dr. Dre, which is not <laughs> uh, as maybe he's depending on how you look at him as big of an icon as Clapton. Um, he's a pretty big icon, though, but he's but a yeah. pretty damn big icon to this day. I think we're going to learn he's who got you asked. To, and he's in 1992, he was a, a defined he he defined a genre, um, a style, and, and continued on. You know the 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 West Coast hip hop that it had sparked up, and he just drove it home and drove its popularity to the masses. To you know, uh, an eighteen-year-old white kid in Garland, Texas, <laughs> all the way <laughs> and to his friends, and and I think we're going to learn that he's got quite a bit more money than Eric Clapton. Uh, what? Well, yeah, I don't know. What's uh, Clapton's? He's not hurting. There, you can tell the number as soon as you're ready, but I, I don't think I think we'll all realize he's got nowhere near what Dr. Dre does. Well, you know, I, I'd love to see Dre post um, beats and pre-beats. I mean, we know what it is post-beats. The headphones, yeah, uh, which I th- personally I think are horrible. horrible. They actually are horrible. Horrible <laughs> headphones to mm-hmm. uh, to to own and to buy. But if that's your thing, then more power to you. They're not. Um, they're not my thing. They're definitely <coughs> no audio technica. So mm-hmm. Andre Young, there was another high five, ladies. That's and a gentlemen. high five, folks. These guys could high five all day. I could. You wanna? It's another high five, folks. That's right. High five that bitch. <laughs> It's three in a row. Well executed. That was just for the three well executed high fives. F yeah. Yeah. High five to commemorate Oh, I could have the said the fives. F word because John already made this an E episode. Huh? Yeah. I'm always on E. Yeah, you are. Uh, so mm-hmm. Andre Young, a.k.a. Dr. Dre. Born Andre in, Young. I've never heard that. Uh, Andre Young. Did you know that? Doctor. I did not know Andre. That. No. Did not. Dre, Andre. That makes way more sense now. Wow, it does. You know, list him as a rapper. He's obviously a rapper. He, he's, at the time, especially, right? But now yeah. he's more than that. But what I've learned about it is he didn't. He he he. I think being a rapper was a means to an end. All he cared mm-hmm. about was being a producer. Yeah. He just happened to come along on NWA and create a situation for himself to be a rapper, but. Which, which, by the way, if his strategy was to become a producer, really smart strategy. If you want long, if you want longevity in music in any part of the industry, in any genre, get into producing. You'll sure, have, you'll have a fifty-year career. And, and and honestly, you know, when when NWA was formed, it was because he wanted to produce more music. Well, and, and he they, just happened to find Easy E and said, "Hey, I got the song. Let me produce it." And then it took off from there. Right. Well, and, th- and think about how many artists were like, whatever happened to them? And then you look them up, and they've been producing for the last 30 years. Yeah, sure. But, you know, and so he's a producer, and then he became 
CEO, basically, of an entertainment group yeah. with Death Row. He created Death Code, created Death Row with Suge Knight. Genius. Who, at the time, was his bodyguard. Suge was? Suge was his bodyguard at the time. Who turned uh, him into a star. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, um, all the way through Aftermath Entertainment and he and Jimmy Iovine creating Beats uh, Electronics, which is... That's where the Sold real to Apple. money is. Sold to Apple for $2 billion or whatever it was. $2 billion. According to sources, uh, Dr. Dre's current net, wor- net worth, he is, he is number three in hip-hop, according to Forbes. Number three with this number. At $740 million. Almost a billion. And he's number three. Three quarters of a billion. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, the, the whole... The TOEF is number two. <laughs> That's right. I'm number one and number two in hip hop because no That's one goes right. harder than Tof. No, true no. story. If anyone ever saw Tof, they would know how crazy that is. <laughs> He's Mr. Generic White Guy. Hashtag Truth. Yeah, absolutely. He's the, he's the milk toast of white dudes. I'm, tra- he's, I'm translucent. He's translucent. <laughs> Which was which was actually the name of my first uh, rap and R&B album. Yep. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the Translucent Boys. Going back to '89 when NWA was formed, you know they they released Easy E's album and they released Niggas with Attitudes, which ca- caught on fire. Beep. I noticed you said that very quietly. Yeah. kind of rushed. Kind of rushed. <laughs> rush white guy, you know. I know. Like, aren't we yeah, required yeah. to do that quietly? Yeah, you, you just I'm, need to beep that I'm out. Reading, I'm just reading a, uh, uh, an album name. Mm-hmm. You should have done air quotes. So, the, air li- quotes? so the listeners knew you were you were saying something. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were just reading something. Thanks, listeners. Or you should have gargled it like they do. You could have just said. You could have said with attitude and words with attitude. No, I'm not going to say that. That's, That's not, not the, the name, name of the it. album or the band. It's not the name of it, Greg. N.W.A. Hey, it's not. Right. John, it's not John's fault that that's what they named their album. That's right. But it's. Yeah. <laughs> So, so and they did have attitudes. They had serious attitudes. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah, they did. But in 1992, Dre created a sound that he, you know, the, the, when he was on his own and got rid of the anger and the in the gangster rap, he was still gangster. Although, if you watch his documentaries on him, he was, you know, he was just a dude living in the hood who used that information to kind of create a persona. He created G uh, West Coast G Funk sound. It was the style of rap that he and Snoop did. It was kind of slow, and uh, you know, a little bit drawn out. It wasn't the hard hitting gangster style. It had synth- synthesizer, uh, slow heavy beats, and it and it was it was kind of the standard for West Coast rap for a long time. Uh, Dre, if y'all don't know, I'm sure people do. He he made um, Tupac who he is. Uh, he he discovered Snoop Dogg. A lot of people, they're little. Don't don't some people blame him for the death of Tupac? Too? Uh, not that. No, they blame Biggie. I I thought they also. Uh, I thought, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy Suge Suge, with him. That was a there's, there's a there story is, there's behind some, them. There are some stories behind yeah. that. Not to say that he did. Or didn't. I'm just saying people have said that in the past, right? People in Greg's circle. Right. That's right. That's the rumors they discussed. At his country Wait, club. my circle? <laughs> uh-huh. Pe- it- every, time, every time I'm around you, you bring up in the sauna. death. In the sauna. In I that, have never once brought... In, in that context. You're okay. always like, yes. totally Dre and Shug. 
Hey guys, what do you think about the, the West Coast, East Coast Trey Shug thing and along with Biggie? And, and I'm, uh, I'm always like, Greg, that was 25 years ago. He's like, yeah, but what do you think? And he just insists on me giving my opinion. And he just won't let it go. No, and he won't let it go. He berates you. All right, so Dre, cre- as a producer, created Tupac, DOC, Snoop Dogg. What, what? Snoop Doggy Dog. Eminem. So Snoop Dogg and Eminem, on their own, have become cultural icons. Yeah, sure. Well, and, and, and he created, the, you and know, he found these guys. Still around and still relevant. Mm-hmm. 50 Cent uh-huh. was a, wow. I want to say a Dre creation, but Dre produced him and helped him become who he is. The Game, which is not that big of a popular, to, to me, he was kind of a bit of a flashback. Ken, Kendrick Lamar, who people... Kendrick Lamar, really? Yes. Yeah. I did not realize. Now, he, people today hold, is yeah. huge. Yeah, for sure. So in 1992, Dre released uh, under Death Row Records his first solo album, The Chronic. So under his own, basically under his own, he produced himself. Right? Yeah, he definitely produced himself. Which I, you know, hey, why wouldn't that's, you? Uh, right. That's I pr- what you do. I produce myself. That's true. It's this. You are Dre of the podcasting. I'm, I am community. The do- I'm the Dr. Dre. Right. Of the podcast community. So, out of the chronic came three big songs. The first one is this one. It's like this and like that and like this and like Yeah, that, everybody like knows this, this one, right? I mean, this is this is Snoop's basic debut, right? Yeah. Ain't nothing but a G thing. Oh, this isn't Humpty Hump? <laughs> then you can hear you can hear that that low bass and this real kind of chilled out it's LA sound style it's LA West Coast sound yep yeah that's pretty good there John good job John there was two more one more extremely popular song probably oh man I don't know I don't know which one's a bigger hit and, and more lasting effect Yep. This is my so this favorite is my favorite song to fold laundry to. <laughs> so when you're mowing the lawn on the weekends, you got this going? Yeah, what about driving the kids around doing and running errands in my minivan? Yeah. You typically put it on a boombox. You're like, listen to this boy strap a boombox to the top of your minivan. I just explain to them that I want to school them and then I play this. Right. Uh, and then Kinda this was interesting. So, so this song is called "Fuck Wit Dre Day." Huh. It was released to think- radio as Dre Day, and this was basically uh, this song was a diss back to Easy E and to Ice Cube for those guys dissing him on previous albums. Because when NWA broke up, even though you watch documentaries and you watch movies like the movie Straight Outta Compton and everything, it was everything was cool. But for for the purpose of creating music and selling albums. Feud. And I and I and I suggest that yes, they were pissed off at each other, but it made for a lot of it made a lot of money being there's, pissed off at no, each other. Yeah, right. there's no question that the feud yeah. and the persona around the feud helped everybody sell yeah. records. Drive this thing to the highest. That's what pipes. I'm going to start doing with you guys. I'm just okay. going to start a feud start with feuding. you guys, and we're going to have a podcast. We're going to make so much money podcasting. Who's, who's so going to move to the East Coast podcasting. or the West Coast? We're going to look a yeah. I'll, I'll go to San Diego. Santa Barbara. Good, we can get him out of here. What? Finally. What? You want to go to? You want to go to Brooklyn? I'm going to go to Charleston, (laughs) South Carolina. (laughs) You're going to go to Hilton Hood. Really? Yes. (laughs) I'm going to go to Tybee Island. It's it's the it's the Tybee Santa Barbara. (laughs) 
we're gonna <laughs> rap war. We're gonna no podcast war. war. We're gonna take, yeah. the, we're gonna take yeah. this bitch to a new level. <laughs> it's uh, so. Uh, I'm gonna dish you guys so hard, but after I enjoy this Chardonnay, <laughs> after I batten down for hurricane season, then I'm coming after you. All right, That's so right. So this Maybe was my uh, tennis racket. This was this was a. Dre Day was a lyrical uh, assault on Easy E. Uh, Luke Campbell of Two Live Crew, one of my favorites. Which I was like, why does that figure in? That didn't um, get a response from But anyway, so here you go. Here's fuck with Dre <laughs> Day. And you notice all these songs sound a little the same. Boy, they do. But the lyrics were delivered with such anger. I think he just played the same music every time and just changed the lyrics. So what you're saying, John? Now he wants to slap his face. Is musically he wasn't very creative at all? Well, no, he was. And then he was just whole idea. So, so basically, I think if we sum it up, he just came up with this one beat and one drive, <coughs> right? And, and then made, just, and then just wrote made some three quarters of a billion dollars, and, and, then, and just, then that's it. And then he just wrote some angry poetry on top of it. Did we just minimize a guy that made well, seven hundred million dollars? Okay, in so he did rap R and B. He with his his bass lines in those drawn out lyrics. He but he also incorporated women, which was a was a major change for the for the G funk. Bring it, because that wasn't a thing you did really? at the time. So the Chronic became a defining album for. Again, I think this was <clears throat> it crossed lines. It crossed. It, it was good. White kids, black kids, uh, East Coast, West Coast. Uh, there, there was. It was so popular. Everybody wanted a piece of it. Well, I grew up in the middle class suburbs of Dallas, Fort Worth, and, and I as heard, well and as I, I did. And, and I heard of Dr. Dre and Chronic. So if it penetrated my neighborhood, you know it had reach. That is right, dog. Dog. <laughs> And, it, and not only that, it was recognized for its popularity. So we had three singles come off this, Ain't Nothing But a G Thing, Dre Day, Let It Ride. Again, Snoop Dogg became a thing. Are you going to wedge in that other piece of audio? Are you still getting to that? Uh, well, that's that, okay. <clears throat> and I wanted you to fit this in. I like cultural, long-lasting cultural impacts from any particular thing. I think Greg will really appreciate this. So I will tell you that this to this day... From, through memes and other and other things, uh, 11, 12-year-old boys, this is still a thing to them. They don't understand where it comes from, and it's been shortened, but here you go. Yeah. Why, what's up? Hey, did, did, did what's your name them get at you yesterday? Oh. These nuts. Oh, shut up, nigga. But I want to ask you one question. <laughs> that is such a thing in to sixth grade boys right now. Yes. I, I cannot tell you. So there you go, folks. Now you've heard the origin of D's Nuts. If D's Nuts was created by, on the Chronic by Dr. Dre. That's right. If he did nothing else, he contributed. That's that worth seven hundred and fifty million right For there. Sure. Beats by Dre and and um, producing Eminem and Snoop Dogg and D's Nuts. I don't know. To which one's number one? Bigger than Eric Clapton? There's no question it's these oh, nuts. Bigger than and then unplugged. These uh, nuts make him bigger than Clapton. Easily, yeah, easily. What has Clapton ever done? He's not done these nuts. He's no. not done these nuts. No, no. Which I think that might have been Snoop actually saying that it was a critical hit uh, across the board. It got five star ratings or a pluses or, or you know fours out of fives, fives out of fives. It was hailed as just you know being the greatest thing since sliced bread. Some people compare it to it on the level of, of of his artistry to things produced by Phil Spector or Brian Wilson, which uh, 
sang a lot. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. That's some of the highest praise you can give any piece of music. He um, <clears throat> Ain't Nothing But a G Thing and Let Me Ride were nominated for the uh, for a Grammy Awards uh, with uh, Let It Ride winning for Best Rap Solo Performance. Um, he sold, it's considered one of the 100's greatest albums by uh, number 35 on the 100 greatest albums by Spin Magazine. I got no problem with that. <clears throat> on the, you know, there's that big list. It's the 500 greatest albums of all time by Rolling Stone. It's 138, which is really high. Really, really high. Yeah. If you look at that list, and I think number one is like the Beatles. That's White like in the top or 22 it, or 23 percent. I mean, that's of all albums. That's massive. Yeah, agreed. As of 2015, we're talking. It had sold 5.7 million. Albums, triple platinum, which is by all means great, but I, it's being as big of impact, uh, being a hundred, number 138 on the 500 best of all time, I expected it to be a lot more than that, but yeah. he's doing okay. He'll, <coughs> yeah. He'll, he's no he'll Whitney live. Houston. He, Greg, you know Whitney Houston is dead, right? Well, I guess he's got one, one thing up on her. <laughs> Just the one thing. He has 775 million other things, but he also has that one thing. 774. Get it straight. Oh, sorry. It worked in your school. It worked in your school at the time. It, you Not know, so it was much per- my parochial school. It was... <laughs> <laughs> Really? It was, no, I'm just kidding. He went to Plano. I went to senior. hard, hard public school. Right. <laughs> the hardest of public yeah. schools. Um, so anyway, The Chronic 1992 was uh, was a, a game changer. It sure was. There's yes, no question it about was. it. It, it, defi- it defined the L.A. West Coast rap scene. Yes. So. And gave us... These nuts. These nuts. Which I try not to get my 12-year-old to say. Get <laughs> All right. Thanks, boys. Well, Thanks, John. Hey, thanks, John. The last thing we're going to do today is I'm going to turn things over to Greg. Oh my gosh, this he's going to like. He's going to. He's going to profile more artists. Five thirty. Greg's going to profile possibly the artist, in my opinion, that truly defines this year and the era of music that was in its peak at this time. Let me just play a little bit of it for you. It sounded something like this. <laughs> da, 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 da. It was edgy. It was dark. Right. It was brooding. Right. Load up my guns and bring your friends. It's fun to lose and to Okay, okay. I'm I just, love it. I have to admit something. I love it when songs like this are done in lounge. <laughs> I do too. I do, I do it all the time at home. Hello. Especially gangster rap. Hello. 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 All right, fair enough. That's another. That's another tune. That's another tune by Paul. Now that's play a, the real one. Thank you, Paul. The beginning. Now I'll play the. Now I'll play the real one. Okay, you guys ready? One of the greatest beginnings. <sighs> Why are you using this recording? Yeah. This is Weird Al, isn't it? What? Yeah. Why would I play Weird Al? Yeah. Because you're Chris Green. Yeah. We're not profiling Weird Al. Yeah. I mean, why would I waste everyone's time when we're trying to get into a discussion about Nirvana and I would go ahead and play Weird Al? I would never do that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fine. If you haven't heard the Weird Al version, a parody song called Smells Like Nirvana. I was going to say, 
he, it, it, this whole album spurred his big year. This was a big year for Will. It, it, was, it, it was. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. Fine. No more joking around. Here's, here's I feel the, like he's about to joke around yeah, again. No, <laughs> no I, I promise I'm not. Here's the song that... that it's like Family Guy. He's going to keep on <laughs> right. until he comes just funny. keep beating the deal. Just yeah. so you know, I've got 15 Nirvana parody songs all loaded up. <laughs> no, no. Here we, here we go. Last time. There's probably 15. Here's, here's the song that really made a huge impact on 1992. So iconic. Yeah. And it's so simple. So, I think we all know what this is. It's Paul Anka. That's right. No, it's not. So, spirit. I think we're, we're talking about 1992. Oh my gosh. And this album was actually released in 91. But in September, September but, yeah. It hit number 1 in 92 and in, that's kind of why we're talking Yeah, the about, second right? week of January. Right. Yeah. So I mean so so, the, so it kind of kicked off the year. And that's and and when they they talked about in a documentary that I saw, they talked about when they knocked off Michael Jackson the King of Pop from being number 1. Nirvana, this group that had come out of, you know, the Seattle underground area, right. and they they actually did, the story. I guess the the two original guys for uh, Nirvana were obviously <laughs> number one, Kurt Cobain, right, and then Chris, who was the creative force behind everything, basically. He, yeah, yeah, he was he was the guy. He actually met. Chris Novoselic, awesome bass player, um, and was nine feet tall, and approached him <laughs> right. and tried to get him to join him, and then that, apparently that didn't happen for a little bit, and then f- eventually he joined him, wow. and they had a different drummer. They had th- until they got to Dave Grohl, who is obviously the one that most people know about. Dave Grohl was their fifth drummer. He was okay. their fifth, 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 wow. fifth drummer. I thought I thought um, he was their second. I thought he was the uh, the Ringo star. Of no, <laughs> no, he was their fifth drummer, and the Ringo. The you know it's they started the the two started in Aberdeen, um, that Washington, and then it became the whole Seattle grunge thing. Um, well, but, the Seattle but, the grunge thing it started previously. Well, it, it and, probably started really three years before with other but, bands, but it wasn't really. Like they never con- they never considered themselves grunge. They always considered yeah. themselves punk. Okay? Right. Their influences were all punk. Nirvana? And, yeah. In 2014, when they be- went into the Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and all they talked about was the punk. And this is actually, well, that, this is when Michael Stipe actually introduced them. That's how I found out about their relationship with him and R.E.M., he introduced them into the Rock and Roll Hall, Hall of Fame as well. So, um, but they talked about their all their influences were punk, and then I saw a, a documentary on it as well. And the documentary talked about 
where did the grunge name, the grunge scene, and no one can for sure say. There's some writer or somebody who mentioned something about it being the sound being grungy, grungy. and dirt, you know, yeah. dark, and, and 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 that's where they think it came from, but they don't know for for sure. Even the guy, the guys in Nirvana, don't know for sure. That's a bummer too, because I love origin stories. Yeah, yeah. I hate that they can't nail down exactly where it came from. So. John, but I think I, you I were going to say something. Thing yeah. Because in the video, it smells like Teen Spirit, which is an iconic video as well. It is. Sure. Yeah. And, and again, the, and the album cover. The song's great. The album cover, yeah. <laughs> With the little, the naked kid mm-hmm. which, chasing which the dollar. Had, which had two versions. There, there's, most <clears> of <throat> right. them out there don't have, don't have the nudity. Yeah. Okay. With those sold at Walmart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, um, the video to me is what stands out. And I know this is about more Nirvana, maybe, than not smells like teen spirit but in in the it's it's dark it's moody uh the anarchy symbol is throughout the video everybody's dirty you know the cheerleaders yep. are wearing brown outfits right yep you know that well kind that's of thing, the thing which they, is very punk they talked about how each they tried they, to encapsulate their punkness in their video yeah how right? they they were when they were kids in high school how they were forced to go to these pep rallies right and these pep rallies they couldn't stand going so they quit going to them and they wished that one of these pep rallies turned version. out. Yeah, it was their version of what they had ah. hoped it would turn out to be. Just complete anarchy. What a great story. Yeah, that would so, be awesome. So that's that's a the reason why they did it. We we actually had a pep rally that that kind of went out of control. We had two of them actually. Really mm-hmm. interesting. It's a story for another podcast. Wow, huh. you were you were from the hood. So Hearst was the worst. <laughs> <laughs> so and and and. For those that don't know, this was actually their second studio album. Um, I was also involved in a food fight in grade school. <laughs> God, you really? Guys, Who yes. won? That's like, like an all cafeteria food fight. I'm shocked you're not in the penitentiary. Who won? I don't remember. Oh. A lot of people got in trouble, including Everybody me. won. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent point. Yes. All right. So, uh, if I recall, the first album was in Bloom. No, Bleach. 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 Sorry. Bleach. Yeah, in bloom was a song on. And, never mind. And you, that's right. Yeah, and then you're also and in utero was their third was follow up after album. this one. Yeah, so um, I don't know if you were going to mention this, but their entire discography of of studio albums is three albums, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean they yeah. had the unplugged and they had a couple others that but they that was put live. together later on as right. well. That was like um, a lot of. What do you mean uh, later on? I'm talking like. What the hell are you talking about? Lady? I thought I'm talking like 2000 something oh, after wow. he, you know, once we get to that part. But but they put together like some garage stuff um, albums oh, right, that, right, they had, right. that they had they they had yeah, done some, some lost recordings. Yeah, and what this did was they were used to playing in front of these small, you know, tiny club crowds. Yes, exactly, club crowds, fifty and, people, hundred people. And if you remember, yeah, that's it. Kind of started the whole crowd surf mosh pit that whole deal too right did you I guys mean, ever go to small club crowds where you did that yeah all yeah. the time that's yeah. all i did yeah we did. all i did are you being serious no but i have i, I am yes. being i am being but serious I, I did a ton of that yeah. in college yeah yeah a college station mm-hmm. believe it or not there hmm. was a, there was two clubs down in downtown Bryan that got really wild yeah we would do it on you know in, in austin in fact, in yeah, fact but i mean that's, good that, stuff. that was, was a bigger city thing. but in, t- in tiny Bryan, Bryan, texas 
There was. I actually went to a what was supposed to be a gore full blood show. <laughs> wow! Again, listeners, if you don't know who Gore wow. is, look look up any video for Gore. G W A R. Yes, please look that it's up. So awesome! And just imagine, I was in a club that was supposed to hold no more than 150 people, and that was packed out. <laughs> and it was an old. It was an old like actual theater where it had a balcony, and it was called the Stafford Opera House at the time. And Gore was set to do a full blood show, and at the last minute. The fire department came in and shut it down. They were going to have blood cannons and everything. <laughs> and I was, and I, and I, I was up in the, wow. I was up in the upper balcony because I wanted to see it, but I didn't want to go. What is this? But I, I was up in the upper balcony, but I didn't want to be covered in theatrical blood at the end. <laughs> Which everybody, if you went to a gore show, you came you home, came right, home covered, covered in yes. theatrical blood. Yeah. And and I never got to witness it because they shut it down. <laughs> wow, that's horrible. I know. It's very, very traumatic story. Very traumatic. Yeah. So, I think, you know, so this became such a huge thing for them not being part of it. And it became an issue for some of the band members, especially Kurt, because he was pretty shy. Okay. He he didn't like to be in the... But he became... He He was a tortured artist. Yeah. He became this person who led a generation right because everybody for sure. looked for looked at him he started this uh, when 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 this hit so big that's when all these the studios went out to seattle to try to find these other bands they did they seattle. just all hopped on airplanes right and went out there and went, went to, you know to groups <clears throat> like sub pop records that had helped create yeah. grunge that's right and just like, who can I sign who can I sign well and fortunately for us they found a bunch of really good ones right they did yeah. I mean, the grunge era had a lot of great grunge bands. So, you know, like, obviously, Pearl Jam was Pearl the Jam, other right. one that was but, but huge. Soundgarden? Soundgarden. Alice in Chains? God, I mean, well, we could... Screaming Trees? Yeah, I mean, Screaming really, trees. really good bands. It was like it's like the Gen X th- soundtrack. It is. No doubt. No doubt. Absolutely. And so, he married Courtney Love, right? He found... Right. A, Who was with a struggling band called Hole at the time. Right. I wonder what the name of that, why they called it that. You know? I don't know. I don't know. Mm. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not either. But apparently she was really trying to go out with him. He turned her down numerous times because he wanted to stay a bachelor. And, but he realized how much he really liked her and then ended up. And then he made a baby with her. And, 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 and that was in 1990 right. and then ended up making a baby with her and then married her in 1992. Greg, will you explain to our audience how that happens? <laughs> Sure. Strictly biologically, using using only biological terms. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, a doctor takes a needle and he sticks some sperm into an egg and huh. then he places it into the woman and then they have a baby. <laughs> So how did Kurt I, talk- I don't recall us talking about in vitro fertilization. <laughs> oh, I thought that was the name of the album. That was the third in album. Utero. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, right. the third album. Wrong. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Which, you know, I don't know the details. Could have been in vitro. Yeah. I don't think so. I think it meant something else. So I don't think it was that obvious. I, don't, huh? I think he officially inseminated her all on his own. <laughs> <laughs> so he they ended up getting married. Small group, only eight people at the wedding. And apparently he came in, she was dressed up in a satin and lace outfit. He was dressed in pajama bottoms. (laughs) 
It was because he was too lazy to put on a tux. That's fantastic. And there were only eight people at the wedding. They had their wedding, got married, and then she popped out a baby really soon after. Like six months later. Right, right. Yeah. I actually tried to do the same thing at my wedding, but when Chelsea came to the front of the church, she made me go back in the back and actually put on my tux. Put on your pants. Which is very embarrassing. She made a scene about it in front of everyone. But you were wearing a nightie, not pajamas, I was wearing a a onesie. It was a onesie. Oh, okay. Yes. It was was a Star Wars onesie. Okay. She wouldn't have it. Which you wore underneath the tux, of course. Yeah, I, yeah, I didn't yeah. take off the onesie. I just put on the tux. Right, right. right. Yes. Well, I was trying to save time. So um, they got married, and then they did their, we talked about the third Adam, uh, album in utero. Mm-hmm. And then in 1994, one day, in April 8th, um, Someone who's, I believe, working on the house, on Kurt Cobain's house, saw Kurt Cobain in the area above his garage area, in the living, there was a living area above the garage area, and thought he had fallen asleep and then noticed the blood on the ground. Not so much. He had eaten a shotgun shell. And the shotgun was laying on his chest, and there was a note beside his body. And... He, he took At the age life. of 27 years old, Kurt Cobain, a lot of people, a lot of people say that, some people, some people say that it wasn't a suicide, that it was mm. actual, someone had murdered him and made it look like a suicide. But a lot of people don't know is in Rome, I believe, uh couple years earlier with Courtney he overdosed on um, pills took about 50 of them some people say and lived and at the time he said he it was an accidental overdose but Courtney Love came out and admitted that he had a note then apparently as well oh wow and it was unsuccessful and so um he was determined he was determined not to fail you know he was one of those dudes that you just kind of knew it might happen for sure I mean you you, you could see the writing on the wall the tortured artist with if anyone was a tortured yeah he was he admitted he had a really bad heroin problem and he had had a heroin problem and you know people say that he had this stomach issue that kept him in pain all the time. And that's why yep. he did the heroin and blah, blah, blah. But Yeah, it was one of those things that it was, it was both really, really shocking, but also not that shocking, if right. that makes sense. But right. what was interesting, too, is that I, I was another thing that I was reading or, or I was actually watching um, is that they said that he drove one of the safest cars around because he wanted to be very safe, but yet huh. he was doing heroin, which is one of the most unsafe things you could possibly that's do. That's very strange. Yeah. That's very strange. I uh, I do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I drive a Volvo and I do a lot of smack. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we keep trying to get you to sell the Volvo, but you just won't I do just, it. I know it has a, the highest crash test rating there is. Like you don't need that thing. Just it's ridiculous. Um, so we never will really know. <laughs> and then out of that, um. The, the other two band members went off and did some other things, and obviously Dave Grohl was the one that became something pretty big after. Became an icon yeah. again. Yeah. Um, I'm big on icons. And, and you, Greg, and, you and I have talked about this. 
Dave Grohl is kind of single-handedly propping up the rock genre today. I love Dave. Yeah, I love Foo Fighters. I love Dave Grohl. Um, I think that he, if it weren't for what happened, in, you know, to Kurt Cobain, we would never would have got to see the full potential of Dave Grohl. Uh, and I absolutely agree with that. And so because they they were a band they talked about they always got along they didn't fight <clears throat> the three of them and they always got along and they which I think is amazing by the yeah. way yeah but that's great to hear and who knows what would happen twenty years later right but right. but they they were best friends and and they did you know they did all this in a garage and work and worked and figure out how to create this sound. And later on, and they bec- and they they weren't one of those bands that like hate each other. If they stayed together like the way they were, Dave Grohl would have been a drummer for this band, right? And a great band, an amazing band. But would he've ever gone off to gone on to do what he does did now? I, who knows? I don't think so. Probably not. I doubt it. Unless they did break up, right? Right. And they would have. You think, they, but it, you think they would have. But there are plenty so of bands that they were just like destined to burn. There are out. plenty of bands that haven't. Dude, you don't the think Eagles about broke up. I mean, but but U two has not. Um, the Pearl Jam has not really broken that's up. That's true. Um, yeah. You've got uh, a, a bunch of bands that haven't broken up. Who knows? They could have been one of those bands. True. For 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 the music that we looked at for '92. They were the ones that I associated with the most. And they had, no a, sh- they had a short run, but they they did define them and Pearl Jam defined that. Yeah, that whole and, genre. And There's no question. And Absolutely. I, I, I spent a majority of my time when I was listening to music on that <laughs> Seattle or the grunge, you know, because some some of the grunge stuff wasn't just from Seattle. Right. That's what started it. But I loved. All of it. I really did. Yeah, so. I, w- I would say between Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Smashing Pumpkins, and Blind Melon, that occupied 90% of my listening for yeah. five years. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. I mean, probably into, the, into 94, 95. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the other thing I was going to mention too, when they made such, when this album became such a huge hit, it became the end of your glam rock. John, you know, yeah. years. Oh, Think yeah. about that's it. True. It was the hair band. Killer. Yes, Absolutely. that's exactly what it was. Well, Motley it, Crue and Poison and those Poison, guys yeah, yeah. It was over. became completely yep. irrelevant. And, and, and that's not the only other ripple effect we talked about in our movie episode. That the mo- the movie Singles, which was loaded with grunge, right? It was highlighted in that movie. Mm-hmm. That just sat on the shelf, and then when Nirvana's Nevermind went big, correct? That's when the movie studio agreed to release that movie. Yep. So that may not even have come out, and who knows what that would have led? It probably wouldn't have come out. It may not have. Yeah. And, and so, how would that affected Cameron Crowe's career, who's right. had an amazing career yeah. since then? So, I mean, incredible impact for for one album and for a band that only had three albums and that really only burned brightly for two years. Two years. Two years. Burned brightly. Yeah. Bleach, Bleach was yeah. eighty nine, which no one, most people never heard of. Yeah. In utero. And then, I what, mean, there's and very died f- in ninety four. Yeah, there's very few musical acts that were the around for piece. yeah for around for such a short period of time that made such a gigantic impact. And I think that's why we wanted to highlight them in this episode. Yeah, and, and absolutely. I think you and I talked about another thing the other day too is that his death kind of made them even more iconic. Than they there's were. no question. Oh, pff, it always yeah. does. Yeah, yeah, it does. 
And and he, he was born at that magic age. There's a handful of other celebrities that died around the age of 27. So I don't... Yeah, he's the... Um, the, the Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, and, and, and then... Jim Morrison. And Jimi Hendrix, also from the Seattle also area. Also from that. Seattle. Mm-hmm. I always felt bad for Chris Novoselic, though. I did, too. Especially when he threw his bass up in the air and it came down and hit him in the face. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, because I felt the worst for Grohl went on to become, I mean, it's larger than life with Foo Fighters. But he was kind of. But that's because Dave Grohl, ever since then, has worked his tail off. Oh no, no, that guy's one of the hardest working guys in music and has been for (laughs) thirty years. But I just keep waiting. It's like, what is what's what's Novoselic doing? Should we do a Where Are They Now on Chris Novoselic? And that's just to the poor bass guy. I've seen him numerous times on these. Like when I looked on YouTube when I was doing some research on this stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, he's still around, and and he accepted the award in 2014 with Grawl and Courtney Love for the Hall of Fame. And and he's still... um, He's still... Doing music stuff, but he also he went back to school too because like all of them were dropouts out of high school. <laughs> he's like, I guess I'll go get right. my, uh, all my bachelor's dropped uh, out of high school. Now, now he's selling insurance. Right. Now he has a subway franchisee in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he's the tallest man selling <laughs> subway. But now, they, he, now they, he's a sandwich artist. They were also one of the first bands too that were on the forefront of. Um, where, where was I going? Sorry. <laughs> you totally distracted me. Well, I mean, your hair. You should focus on your, your dudes. <laughs> How show- can I focus when that's going on Do back there? Do the show there? for the listener. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you going to worry about the paper? Um, we do the show for the P1s. <laughs> that's a joke for three. <laughs> he didn't care, and he was so disturbed, but he was also, he was cool. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. I don't know how realistic this was, but I heard him say it, so he said it. Um, he talked about how, like, when he was younger, a lot of the jocks, the kid, he called them the kids that always brushed their teeth when they were supposed to. He <laughs> goes, he goes, they asked me to be part of their group or whatever it may be, and he goes, I just didn't want to be that. I never would have seen Kurt Cobain as one of the jock crowd, you know? I mean, no. Ever. No. Ever. No. And I wouldn't see the jocks wanting him to be part of their crowd either, but the fame was probably one of the things that brought him down. Yeah, he hated it. Yeah. Because they talked about the first album, they weren't happy with the fact that it didn't sell as many albums as they wanted it to. Yeah, he, he wanted time. to be successful. He didn't want to be the face of a genre. Right. Which is exactly what he was. That's correct. So that's that's Nirvana. Yeah, Pro- probably the one band out of the three that we discussed that that defined defined that year, maybe the best. Well, for us at least, I think for others, I don't know if that's well, the case. Well, this is our podcast. Yeah, so for us, right. I agree. Dang it! Yeah. But obviously, there was Billy Ray had a lot to say about that. <laughs> so, so did Carlos. I wonder what Nirvana thought about Achy Breaky Heart. Yeah. I would like to have heard a Nirvana, a Nirvana cover of Vicky Breaking Heart. Yeah. Oh, man. That would have been delicious. That would have been. All right, gentlemen. Well, that wraps up our look at the music of 1992. I think we did a pretty good job of conveying to the listener what that year sounded like. Yeah. Uh, and if you weren't around back then... You were missing out. You, you should have felt like you had been. That's out. that's a true statement. You were missing I, out. I agree with if that. If it was back in the eighties or something like that, you might not have been missing out all that much. There are just a couple of great years in music. 
I think maybe 65 is one of them. 73, 78, uh, 87 for me is one of them. 92 is one of them. I might suggest uh, 94. And then 94 or 95. I'll take 94. We're pretty big. And then after that, it all went to hell. Okay, just so you, I, <laughs> I don't, says the old really man. Did. Says the old just, man. Oh, dude, I'll totally own old man syndrome you on that. Just so you know, a couple means two. And then he named seven. Do that. He named seven. <laughs> I don't like you very much. Now. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, I think the next time we get together, we'll continue our series in 1992. We'll discuss television shows or yes, TV from that year. and hopefully it doesn't take three hours. three hours. Six hours. What? All right, guys. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Chris. See you, Greg. All right. Talk, hey. Bye, Greg. Bye, 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 Johnny. As I'm screaming Johnny, and I'm may, two feet from you. We like having. Why are you yelling? Johnny. I'm two feet <laughs> from you, Johnny. You're awesome. Good, good to have you, boy. All right. So. See you, boys. Tough. You can listen to the Gravity Beard podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or anywhere else you consume podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at the Gravity Beard. Email us at contactthebeard at gmail.com or interact with us and other indie pods in the Underdog Podcast community on Facebook. We definitely want to hear from you. If you got at least a dollar's worth of entertainment out of today's episode, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash gravitybeard for more details. Gravity Beard is a proud member of the Podfix Network. Go to podfixnetwork.com to see a complete list of network shows. You may also consider subscribing to Podfix Presents. It's a Podfix by all the Podfix hosts, where you can hear exclusive original content that you'll not hear on their individual shows. Our theme song is Sophomore Makeout by Silent Partner. All the rest of the music credits will be in the show notes. Next week is our last installment of This Week Today for 2017. Then, in two weeks, I'm very excited to announce that both Adam and his wife Liz, co-host of the Avoid Being Hated podcast, will join me for our first Christmas special. Until next time... This is the Gravity Beard Podcast. It's what your ears will want to be listening to. This is the Gravity Beard Podcast. Did you serenade him and he came back to you? <laughs> what? I'm so what? Glad. I'm so glad you did that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like in Say Anything, where he held up the boom box. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you dry hump the slug. <laughs> Wow, that, uh-huh. okay, you might have taken it one step too far. Yeah, I saw them on. And they had that on tour. That girl, that model, he was dating at the time. She was hot. Yeah. And he allegedly, well, I don't know if it was alleged, but he beat up. Anyway, oh, uh, let's, let's right. say alleged, alleged, with, with, alleged, alleged. Did you say he was a legend for doing that? Yeah, he was a legend. What a controversial uh, opinion that is. Talk about that with Dr. Wow. Dre as well. I like that joke. <laughs>